Today on Ag News Daily. I became executive director because I, um, in all of the opportunities I've had um, since I was working in the Senate, it was focusing on agriculture and sustainability and climate change. Here we are, Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. Delaney's already started bossing me around this morning, listeners, so this ought to be a good show. Kenner, would you expect anything else from me? <laughs> no, not not at all. I'm surprised you don't boss me around more. Well, I could if you'd like me to. <clears throat> That's not the case at all. Well, no, I'm going to boss case you at all. talking to about some weather because I know that you're itching too anyway. Just itching too? Well, we don't have a ton of it. It looks like uh, we do have some winter weather that's headed down into the southern region. Winter weather is headed for those southern plains today and tomorrow. We have developed a couple of storm warnings and advisories that have been issued in that region. A winter storm could affect everywhere from eastern Colorado along the Kansas border into parts of Oklahoma until about 5 p.m. this evening. Travel may be difficult. This will make road conditions very slick, according to the National Weather Service. This winter weather advisory is in effect <clears throat> until uh, this evening and will bring about two to three inches of snow in that area. We've got dry and clear conditions here in the state of Iowa, which spans most of Nebraska, Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana as well. It'll be a about average temperatures today, it looks like in those areas of the country, Delaney. So that's what I've got for weather. All right. That was fairly short. So thanks for hitting it. Well, we'll move on here, Tanner, to some other news. A new bipartisan bill is intended to be introduced into Congress later this week called the Fertilizer Research Act of 2023. This bill is co-sponsored by folks on both sides of the aisle, including Senator Chuck Grassley and Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin. And the bill is essentially a call to the USDA to start investigating the concentration within the fertilizer industry here in the United States and abroad to assess any potential anti-competitive impacts. This move comes as a lot of American farmers have expressed concerns about the availability and cost fluctuations that we've seen within the nutrient space over the last few years, particularly following the invasion of Ukraine. And key points about this bill in particular would look at the scrutiny of concentration. So examining the concentration within the industry to assess whether it has led to anti-competitive practices, such as those we've seen in other industries, transparency and pricing to direct the USDA to look into pricing, transparency, imports, technology, and other relevant issues within the fertilizer industry, support from the farm groups. It's also requesting that, you know, the bill has support from, you know, folks like the Iowa Corn Growers Association, et cetera, and to involve them in the process, as well as transparency advocation, which would include involving groups like the Fertilizer Institute and also seeking to reestablish uh, a fertilizer economist at the USDA to serve as a liaison on these matters. And then a few other things as it continues down the path here to progression, but Senator Chuck Grassley said he aims to have this legislation included in the next five-year farm bill reauthorization, but it's open to other passages for it if it doesn't make it into the next farm bill, Tanner. But I'm sure we'll see a lot of pieces of legislation like this popping into the farm bill as they try to get this thing wrapped up next year.
Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. But if you're talking fertilizer, nitrogen is one of the key components there. And Pivot Bio's proven 40 has upgraded technology released for the 2024 growing season. Proven 40 is just one of the products that Pivot Bio has in their lineup for on seed or liquid use for corn fertilizer. It's developed a new strain of dependable nitrogen that has proven performance. CEO Chris Abbott has stated that the company plans to boost their production as well as uh, their area of coverage for the additional traits included. I should, traits is not the correct word. The technology included and proven in to help farmers save money this next growing season. Their biological solution is provided the soils an opportunity to digest and break down the nitrogen that is in the soil, allowing farmers to put down less nitrogen. The process allows them to be the next step in the innovation process of agriculture that can fit into any type of farm. Pairing these strategies together with existing nitrogen management programs will provide revenue opportunities of boosted bottom lines for farmers. They are looking to use the injected capital from a fundraising round to provide more scientific research into their product to continue to boost that going forward. The microbes are a large focus of crop producers today, so they are looking to continue to provide quality products and quality information to go along with what farmers are doing in the field. So I wondered, Delaney, if this is a type of research that could be included, if that couldn't fit into some of the headlines that you just reported on, Delaney. It certainly sounds like that could be the case, Tanner, but switching tracks here to some global economic headlines. The U.S. and China, as we know, have been trying to repair relations, but it sounds like we're not taking a step in that direction with some of the latest news that's come out this week. Over the last year, we've seen the United States and China meeting to discuss the path forward. We also, of course, know that President Biden and President Jinping met in California last month to try and figure out next steps to repairing the two-party relationship here. But we're not maybe going to see that happen here, especially if we see Congress following through on a sweeping set of recommendations to quote-unquote reset the relationship between the two countries. The Select Committee on the Strategic Competition has been an ongoing working group between the United States and China for nearly a year now. And after meeting for nearly a year, on Tuesday, the United States released a wide-ranging list of recommendations calling for what they're calling a reset in the U.S.-China relationship. Now, why this matters so much, Tanner, is because among the 150 or so recommendations in their reset report, this committee has called on Congress to pass a bill that would repeal China's Permanent Normal Trade Relations status, or PNTR. This status was granted back in 2000 and essentially gives China access to trade with the United States and gives them much lower tariffs than they would be received if they were not of that PNTR status. This could royally tick off the Chinese population, especially considering that the U.S. is one of their largest trading partners and we receive a lot of their goods import-wise here. So this may not be a step in the right direction. Of course, Congress has to decide what to do with this reset report and whether or not they will act on it. 
but they're getting a lot of pressure, it sounds like, from this committee report, Tanner, to make some sort of change here moving into 2024. That's interesting. I hadn't caught that. I'm glad that you're able to share that with us. We do have a story here of a farmer that's dealing with our U.S. government in relation to the opportunity to farm on his ground. John Yearwood, who was a part of the 101st Airborne Division in the Vietnam War, is looking to battle Texas officials and United States government officials for his Texas ranch land. It has now been considered a critical habitat under the Endangered Species Act and are now looking to potentially take away his property value and his ability to ranch because of that designation. The intent that he has is to regain full rights on the acreage that he has owned and has been in his family for over a century, but he was denied a hearing by the U.S. Supreme Court. This has never been an issue about overstepping boundaries there's never been an issue about just an endangered species it's been an issue about overstepping boundaries the part that he is dealing with delaney is the bug there is an insect that is on the protected list so since 1871 he and his family have owned this property their family is considered heritage property within the state that has a property that has been in ownership for more than 100 years and now scientists that are looking at biological and geological formations on his property are stating that the endangered species act gives the government the right to seize his property and cease operations of ranch activities so as you take a look here, he has some caves on his property, Delaney, that have uh, bones from arachnids that are pale orange and have eyeless bodies. So scientists state that this is an endangered species that they might be able to find living siblings of. But as of right now, all they've found is remains from them. So we'll see here if they continue to do this. Yearwood has the opportunity to uh, potentially pursue legal stuff, but states that it could cost him more than $400,000 to fight this endangered species designation for him just to return back to his normal operations of ranching down in Texas, Delaney. That certainly sounds like a tough road to hoe ahead for him, Tanner. I'm glad I'm not in his position. I am as well. Tanner, as we look at farmland sales here for the state of Iowa in 2023, the surge continued, however, at much smaller increments compared to the past few years prior. On average, here in the state of Iowa, we're starting to see Iowa State University's land values survey finally conclude, which showed a range of regional conditions. But as we look at the average farmland purchase price statewide, on average, it cost $11,835 to buy an acre of farmland. That's a 3.7% increase from 2022, but does pale in comparison. In 2022, compared to 21, we saw a 17% gain in farmland prices. And 21 to 22, we saw a 29% increase in farmland prices. So this certainly was a marginal gain compared to years prior. However, the outlook does remain moving forward, Tanner, heading into the new year, that farmland sales certainly are not going to step back in strength or value. 
yeah, I think that article is right on pace. The last headlines that I have is just an update. Like we talked yesterday during our Market Monday conversation, the Federal Reserve is set to announce uh, I'm sorry, two days ago during our Market Monday conversation, the Federal Reserve is set to announce its latest monetary policy decision at 2 p.m. Eastern time on today. This will be a press conference with Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Markets are fully expecting the bank to hold rates steady for the third straight time as it continues to review their data. That is coming after the previous 11 hikes in a row. Fed officials agree that they have not hit central bank's 2% target that interest rates would hold for inflation. Their most elevated level in 22 years is potentially needing to stay at this higher level for longer. Markets are expecting the central bank to start cutting rates as early as the first quarter next year. So you could see movements based upon the sentiment and hints at when those rate cuts could happen. A point that the Fed will be interesting to see if they will concede that information during their press conference today. So that is what a lot of the market is going to pay attention to. Delaney is the comments coming from Powell as to when, if there are any hints at when rates could come back down again. Well, Tanner, I think we'll be eager to report on that headline, hopefully again tomorrow with some more clarity about what direction we see this thing taking. Absolutely. But one thing we can report on now is the direction the markets are taking here in the overnight. Tanner, as we look at March corn here in the overnight, they're down four and a half cents at 480 and three quarters. January soybeans down six and three quarters cents at 713 and a quarter. Wheat this morning also down on the board. March contract down 12 and a quarter cent in the Chicago at 613 and a quarter. Hard red winter wheat. In the March contract down 11 pennies at 6.45 and three quarters and March spring wheat down nine and a half cents at 7.20. Taking a look at livestock and a quick reminder at where they closed yesterday, February live cattle added 70 cents will open this morning at a buck 68.60. January feeder cattle added a dollar 30 will open at 2.19.25 and February lean hogs added 92 and a half cents will open this morning at 68.25. Tanner, we're kicking it over to a fun conversation today with Debbie Reed, the executive director of the Ecosystem Services Market Consortium. I know it's a long name, but Debbie is going to talk to us about carbon sequestration. And she really was at the forefront seeing this thing evolve over the last 20 plus years. So it's a good historical conversation as well, Tanner. So let's turn it over to that conversation with Debbie. We are sure to be enlightened during our conversation that we're about to have here. It's our excitement to introduce to you Debbie Reed, who's the executive director, and I'm going to let her tell you who she's the executive director for. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, And yes, I'm the executive director for ESMC, which is Ecosystem Services Market Consortium. And listeners, you will find delight in this. I think she told me three or four times before we started, and I copped out and said, would you mind sharing your title with the listeners? (laughs) (laughs) Not a problem. It is rather lengthy. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to the role that you're in now? Yes, thanks for asking. Well, I actually was working in the Senate for a Nebraska senator in 1997, 
when we were working on Endangered Species Act and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, both from the perspective of um, agriculture and land use. Um, and it became clear uh, at the time that in the climate change negotiations, there was no representation of agriculture, either technically in terms of agriculture's ability to reduce climate change um, and the fact that agriculture as a business done outdoors is in the crosshairs of climate change. Um, and so I started working on it and just fortuitously, I met two soil scientists, one who was from Nebraska and one from Ohio, at a meeting who told told me about soil carbon sequestration and the fact that this is what farmers do every day and there are ways to improve that and really help solve the climate equation. So um, I have been working on this issue and uh, sustainability from agriculture, which includes water and other services um, since then and really figuring out what are the programmatic tools and policies um, that we need to actually ensure that uh, all of the voluntary opportunities for farmers that we can undertake are brought to fruition. So I started working on carbon markets um, in the 90s and have evolved into what we're doing today with ESMC. Isn't that w fascinating that, <clears throat> sorry, Delaney, I got to follow up. Yep. Isn't that fascinating that the carbon market started in the 90s, but we've only really heard of it of recent couple of years really coming to the forefront? Yes, that is so true. And I will tell you, when I was talking to the two soil scientists about this, they were saying we could pay farmers for soil carbon. So my boss started doing interviews in 1997 about paying farmers for soil carbon. We can generate credits and pay them. And I remember distinctly some additional um, members and responses he got and I got to, what are you talking about, right? That's crazy. Except that the White House was very interested because they really understood not just the potential, um, but the fact that we could actually engage the agricultural sector because until then there had been no engagement. I love this. I feel like, Tanner, we're talking to one of the founding farmers, founding women, founding members of the soil sequestration, the carbon market space, because, Tanner, you took the question right out of my out of my mouth earlier. But Debbie, as far as you were in the 90s, you were doing some of this really advanced work to pioneer the space. How did that go then to becoming the executive director? And tell us a little bit more about the company that you work for today. Yes, thanks, Delaney. Um, so it's a good question. I became executive director because I, um, in 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 all of the opportunities I've had um, since I was working in the Senate, it was focusing on agriculture and sustainability and climate change. Um, and what one thing that became clear to me before we actually founded ESMC was that there was no systematic national approach being dedicated to this, right? And this being agriculture as a way to help solve the climate problem, but also how we actually arm agricultural producers with the tools they need to defend themselves against climate change. So um, I just happened to be in a discussions with um, organizations led by the Noble Research Institute in, in Ardmore, Oklahoma, 
and kind of gave them my opinion of, of what needed to happen in this space to actually create markets that worked for the agricultural sector and could, could meet the coming needs um, of corporations who were starting to make commitments. And lo and behold, we uh, it just evolved from there. So I was one of the um, original participants in uh, discussions about if we could start from scratch and create markets that work for ag, how would we do it? And here we are, right? We developed a business plan in 2018 and we have proceeded with developing the organization according to that plan. Yes. One of the recent articles that we saw on agriculture.com featured what you guys are working on. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about EcoHarvest? Yes. Uh, so EcoHarvest is um, the, the name we ascribe to our actual market program. And we are a nonprofit market program. I think we are the only nonprofit um, ecosystems or carbon market program in the world, at least the one, the only one that I know of. And what we really have set ourselves up to do is to ensure success for what we call buyers and sellers in a market, right? So we have developed a program that is focused on how do we provide the tools, the technologies, the programming, the technical assistance support, and most importantly, the money to farmers and ranchers who undertake changes on their farms or ranches that will result in the outcomes that both mitigate climate change, but also uh, reduce water use or improve water quality or improve biodiversity. Um, we also uh, have worked with what we call the buyers, right? We know what the buyers' needs are, and we've developed the programming to meet their needs according to um, their requirements for reporting and making claims every year. So we really focused on what is the demand side, what is the supply side, and then how do we create all of the tools and technologies to make uh, buyers and sellers successful, if you will. Um, but also we're a public-private partnership. So we work with USDA, we work with EPA and the Department of Energy um, and in, uh, both private and um, nonprofit organizations, if you will, across the entire agricultural supply chain um, to use a, perhaps a worn uh, terminology. It, it does take a village to do this, right? Not uh, any one person or organization can create the entire programming to get this done. So we do it in concert with our partners and our members across the supply chain. Now, Debbie, you mentioned that you were unique in that you are a nonprofit organization focused on these efforts, which is, like you mentioned, very uh, dissimilar from others in the carbon space who have clear reasons why, you know, they're doing it to help farmers, but also to make a profit off of it. So why go the nonprofit route and how does that position you differently from some of the other carbon companies that are out there? It's a good question, Delaney. We um, we created ourselves as a nonprofit for a couple of reasons. We are trying to scale impacts. Our mission is to scale beneficial impacts for society and farmers and ranchers and corporations. The best way for us to do that is to not have um, a profit motive, right? So we're serving members on both sides of the fence, the buyers and the sellers, if you will, and really just trying to ensure they're successful. 
Um, so I think that's one important point. We don't have a conflict of interest. We are really just trying to serve the greater good. I think the other thing is what we have seen in these markets, and this particularly applies, applies to the agricultural sector, is that generally what has happened in carbon markets is credits get created, farmers get paid for that, but then those credits enter secondary and tertiary markets, and there's often a, a, a much greater profit that is made, none of which goes back to the producer. So we really try to set turn this on the head um, and ensure that any profit that can be made for farmers and ranchers goes to them. And we just covered the cost of our services to actually create the, the credits, ensure that they're verified um, and meet the needs of the buyer. So we are really just a, a middleman, if you will, but trying to keep other middlemen from creating profits where in fact these profits should be going to farmers and ranchers who do the work. So how do our listeners or other farmers and ranchers qualify to participate with you guys? That's a good question. Um, one way in which we engage farmers and ranchers is directly through buyers who say, this is my supply chain and these are the producers I work with. That is not typically common in this space. So generally what we find out from the buyers is where they want to work, which commodities they're interested in working with. And then our partners go out and engage producers. We have maps on our website that show where projects exist right now. Um, but generally, it, the engagement for farmers and ranchers happens with through their trusted advisors and technical assistance providers. Um, we don't yet have an open enrollment, if you will, because the markets we operate in are very specific to commodities and to regions from which those commodities are sourced from um, buyers. So we don't work in offset markets, we work in what is called an inset market. And that means it's you can't just enroll people, uh, producers anywhere, you enroll based on a specific geography and production system. So it's a little more complex and it thus limits our ability to have open enrollment, but we do encourage producers, if you see a project in on our website in a region you're operating in, please reach out and we'll see if we can add you to it. So as you mentioned, they're very complex projects, very different geography-based, et cetera. But at a high level, could you walk us through maybe some of what the projects are that they're going about doing? And more importantly, how are producers getting paid out? Is it for new practices to implement or practices that they've already been doing? Yes, that, that is also a good question. So the program is based on new practices. Um, if you think about a market program, basically they pay for new practices and thus new outcomes. Um, so producers, we have lists of eligible practices that can be adopted for whatever system we're working in, uh, whether it's a cropping system and we're also launching livestock um, and other projects. But we list the um, eligible practices for the production systems, and then producers enroll fields, as many fields as they like, where they will uh, adopt one or more practice changes on those fields. Um, and then they collect the data that is required for us to quantify, if you will, their um, outcomes. 
And then once we have quantified the outcomes at the end of the year, based on the practice changes they've undertaken, um, we make them available to buyers. We are generally lining up buyers ahead of time. So when the buyers pay for the outcomes, we license the outcomes to them. Um, when they pay for them, we then pay the producers. And the reason we license outcomes to buyers is we want the data and all of that the data represents to always be owned by producers because this is a data-driven economy. Well, this is a very different approach than what we've had for guests on this podcast before. So I know our listeners are going to be curious. If they want to learn more about what you guys have going on, what's the best way for them to look you up? That's great question. So you can go to our website, which is www.ecosystemservicesmarket.org. And there are multiple places there where you can um, request information and feedback um, and also sign up for our newsletter, which comes out monthly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Tanner and Delaney. It was very nice to talk to you. Long name. Great interview. Appreciate her hanging out with us as far as uh, doing that conversation to give you listeners some perspective. Appreciate her knowledge. We also appreciate you listeners. But today, what do you say, Delaney? Is it time to let him go? Let's let him go. 